And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Carl Heffler tells the story of a little boy who was visiting his grandparents uh, for the summer. Uh, he was given his first slingshot and he was out in the woods enjoying it, although he could never hit anything he was aiming at. But on his way home, as he cut through the backyard, he saw grandmother's favorite uh, duck. And so he took aim and he let the stone fly and to his horror, it went straight to the mark and struck the, dead, the, the, the duck dead. The boy panicked. He quickly hid the, hid the dead duck in the woodpile. And then he saw his smirking sister Sally over by the corner of the house. She had seen the whole affair. So they went in for lunch and Sally said nothing. After lunch, grandmother said, Sally, let's clear the table and wash the dishes. And, and Sally said, oh, grandmother, Johnny said that he wanted to help you in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispers in his ear, remember the duck. So, of course, Johnny did the dishes. Later that day, grandfather called the children and said, hey, let's go fishing. And grandmother said, I'm sorry, but Sally has to stay here and help me clean the house and get dinner ready for tonight. And Sally smiled and said, that's all been taken care of, grandmother. Johnny said he wanted to help you today, didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered, remember the duck. This went on for several days. Johnny did all of the chores, uh, both his and those assigned to Sally. And finally, he had had enough and he could stand it no longer. So he went to his grandmother and he confessed all. His grandmother took him in her arms and said, I know, Johnny. I was standing at the kitchen window. I saw the whole thing. And because I love you, I forgave you. And knowing that I loved you and would always forgive you, I, I just wondered how long you would let Sally make you a slave. You see, guilt makes slaves of us all. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they tried in vain to hide from God. Uh, guilt makes us want to hide from His holy presence. It also alienates us from one another. We're afraid that if others find out what we've done, they'll either reject us or they'll use the information to kind of hold us hostage, remember the duck. But because we've all sinned and because God knows all of our sins, even our secret sins, what we all desperately need is the supreme blessing of God's forgiveness. In our last study, we saw how Abraham, the father of, Jewish, father of the Jewish faith, he was justified by faith alone and not by works. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. It's to be acquitted of all our sins by God's judicial decree, not guilty. Now, in, in explaining this wonderful truth back in verses 4 and 5, which precede our passage today, Paul writes, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. We understand that, right? We, we, we work for a paycheck, and when we get that paycheck, it's what we're due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, we saw that God does not justify the pretty good guy who tries to do his best. He doesn't justify the one whose good works outweigh his bad. Rather, he justifies the ungodly sinner who has faith in Christ. But maybe Paul was stretching things a bit. After all, the Jews knew that Abraham was a good man. 
Maybe God justified Abraham because of some of his good works. So Paul brings in another witness, King David. Now the Jews also recognized King David as a great man. He was the best of Israel's kings. But as everyone knew, he also had sinned greatly. He committed adultery of the Bathsheba and then tried to cover it up when she got pregnant by having her husband murdered. So Paul brings David in as a second witness to prove that God justifies sinners by faith apart from any good works. Now Paul cites David's Psalm 32 verses 1 through 2 and he's doing it from the Septuagint. Here's what it reads. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now the common thread between Psalm 32.2 and Genesis 15.6 is the word credited or, or take into account. It's an accounting term. It means to enter something into a ledger. In Abraham's case, God entered into the asset column righteousness. Now was it his righteousness? No, we know it was the righteousness of Christ. And in David's case, God did not enter into the liabilities common, uh, column sin. He did not credit David's sin against him. Now, Paul says that it amounts to the same thing. He introduces David's uh, Psalm 32 in verse 6 saying, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So in Psalm 32, which is primarily what we're going to be looking at this morning, David extols the supreme blessing of God's gracious forgiveness for all of our sins. And Paul uses these verses to teach us that the supreme blessing of God forgiving all of your sins comes through faith apart from any works. Well, let's pray. Father, it seems that we are hardwired to take care of ourselves, to do what we can, uh, Father, to commend ourselves to you. That's part of our fallen nature. And but God, it stands opposed to your grace. So God, I pray that you would break through our hard hearts this morning to see just how much you love us, that you would give us salvation simply through faith in your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, as we saw last time in our study of Romans, uh, the do this doctrine of God justifying the ungodly by grace alone, apart from any good works, that kind of grates against our fallen nature. We instinctively want good people to go to heaven because of their goodness. We want terrible people to pay for their sins. They, they shouldn't get off scot-free. But if this were true, then we would have grounds to boast in our goodness as the reason for our salvation. And there would be no hope for the really bad sinners. There would be no good news for them. So if Mother Teresa is in heaven today, it's because she saw herself as an undeserving sinner and she fled to the cross for mercy. If a mass murderer is in heaven today, it's because he saw himself as an undeserving sinner and fled to the cross for God's mercy. God only justifies the ungodly. Do you remember the parable in Matthew 20? A landowner went out early in the morning to find some workers for his vineyard and he promised to pay them a, a denarius for a full day's work. 
And he, uh, mid-morning, he went out and he hired others and he agreed to give them whatever was right. He did the same thing at noon and then at mid-afternoon. And then just an hour before sunset, he, he found others and sent them into his vineyard to work. When it was time to pay the laborers, those who came an hour before dark received a full denarius. And when those who had been working all day came, they expected to get more because they had bore the burden of the heat. They had worked eight or ten hours or whatever it was, but they also got a denarius. And they grumbled about how unfair it was. But the landowner said, I gave you what we agreed upon. Take what is yours and go. Then he says, but am I not free to be generous with these last men with what is my own? That's how God's grace works. It's not dispensed according to merit. Everything in our life tells us this is wrong. That's not the way we function, is it? But it's the way God functions. He gives it freely to whom he chooses. Paul says in Romans 9, 16, it does not depend on him who wills or on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now the point that Paul drives home, we've said this many times, from 118 to 320 is that we are all under sin. He spends two solid chapters there telling us that Jews and Gentiles are like the pagans who do not know God, they are obviously under sin. But so are the religious folks, the Jews, who think that they are better than the pagans. We all deserve God's judgment, and so we all desperately need His grace, His unmerited favor. Now, the good news of the gospel is that God freely justifies and pardons every sinner who does not work, but believes in Jesus as the propitiation for his sins, the payment, the satisfaction of his sins. So in our text, Paul is reinforcing, reinforcing that point from David's Psalm 32. Now, obviously, the emphasis is on the blessing of God's gracious forgiveness. So major point number one here, the greatest blessing of all is to have God forgive all of your sins. Now, to appreciate this blessing of forgiveness, A, we must feel the heavy burden of our actual guilt. A cartoon pictured a psychologist saying to a patient, Mr. Figby, I think I can explain your feelings of guilt. You're guilty. Ever since the fall, sinners have instinctively responded to guilt by blaming others. When God confronted Abraham, he blamed his wife. He even implicated uh, God for giving him his wife. Do you remember what he said? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. In effect, he was saying, it's her fault or maybe even your fault, but certainly don't blame me. Blaming others doesn't alleviate the guilt. Now, true. If a person keeps denying his sin and blaming it on others, eventually he may develop what we would call a seared conscience where he feels no guilt, even for horrific sins. Supposedly, the Cambodian dictator Pol Pot, he felt no twinge of guilt for murdering over a million of his own countrymen. But even if the sinner's conscience is seared, it doesn't remove the reality that he will answer for his many sins before God. 
So a guilty conscience, it's really a good thing. It's kind of like pain sensors in our body which alert us to a problem. Did you know that if you have leprosy uh, in your extremities, that those extremities lose their nerves and you can actually burn off your finger and not know it? Well, if we suppress our guilt, it often leads to other emotional, physical, and relational problems. But guilt should get our attention by shouting, you're not right with God. Something is off. Think about David. He suppressed his guilt over Bathsheba and Uriah for about eight months until he was confronted with a story by Nathan and and Nathan just said directly to him, you are the man, you're guilty. David realized it and he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now out of that we get Psalm 51. Thank God for Psalm 51. Puritan Robert Bolton. At first he resisted the gospel, but later he came to Christ after deep conviction of his sins. And he wrote, A man must feel himself in misery before he will go about to find a remedy. Be sick before he will seek a physician. Be in prison before he will seek a pardon. A sinner must be cast down confounded, condemned, a castaway, and lost in himself before he will look about for a savior, end quote. J.C. Ryle put it like this, never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels the disease. Never does a man see any beauty in Christ as a savior until he discovers that he is himself a lost and ruined sinner. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, describing his own uh, painful five years of conviction of sin before his conversion, he says, too many think lightly of sin, and therefore they think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with a rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed, end quote. So for God's blessing of forgiving all your sins to be that supreme blessing, you must feel to some extent the heavy burden of your guilt before God. And then B, forgiveness is the greatest of all blessings. How many remember the first time you ever asked God to forgive you of your sins? Did you come away from that and and time subsequent to that where you've done that feeling as clean as a baby? Spotless. It's it's unbelievable to have your sins forgiven. Now the Greek word for blessed means happy, especially in the sense of, of being the recipient of God's favor. John Piper defines it as a condition in which you are deeply secure and content and happy in God. We might think that those who are rich in this world's goods are blessed. But as you know, many rich people, they're they're kind of miserable because they lack those close relationships with other people. They often often have to keep others at a distance because they're afraid that those people will take their money. And besides, this world's riches, they can disappear in a moment with a a stock market collapse, a war, or uh, some other disaster. And think about this, everything that we accumulate in this life it will disappear (laughs) the moment we die. So the only true and lasting blessing is to be right with God by knowing that he has forgiven all of our sins. 
Deb, will you bring, bring me that water? My throat's getting a little crusty here. What a great feeling to know uh, the burden of all of our sin has been gone, is gone forever. Thank you. Now here's something that you need to keep in mind. When God forgives all of our sins, it doesn't mean that he removes all of the temporal consequences for our sins. God forgave David, but he ordained some rather heavy, severe consequences on David and his family for the rest of his life. As a result of his sin, David lost four sons that plagued him for the rest of his life. Sometimes God graciously softens the consequences. We call that mercy. He doesn't give us everything that we deserve, right? In mercy, he softens it. But other times, he uses our, those consequences to teach us to hate our sin. Now, the fact that, ex that we experience difficult trials, it doesn't mean that God has not forgiven us. In fact, it is one evidence that he has forgiven us. He is simply disciplining us as a child that he loves. Now also, there are Christian authors who talk about the need to forgive yourself. Well, folks, you're not gonna find that verbiage anywhere or that concept in scripture. If we have sinned, we must seek God's forgiveness. And we must ask God's forgiveness of those that we have sinned against. And if we have wronged others, or if they have wronged us, we must forgive them. But the Bible never talks about forgiving yourself. Your need is to receive God's forgiveness. Trust me, when God forgives you, <laughs> you forgive yourself. Now before we leave this point, I just have to ask, have you experienced this greatest of all blessings? Do you know that God has forgiven all of your sins? Are you sure that he will not take them into account on that day when you stand before him? Now in the context, Paul is still talking about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So we might wonder, how does forgiveness fit in with justification? Well, that's point number two. Justification means that God credits Christ's righteousness to the guilty sinner and he forgives all his sins apart from any good works. John Calvin summed up his understanding of justification like this, that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Think of a ledger. Your sins, they're kind of red right and they're below the line they're not good and and they amount to a lot forgiveness takes that off the ledger now you're at ground zero but better than that when we trust in Christ God credits Christ's righteousness to us so no longer is our account in the red we are in black as good as you can be with the righteousness of Christ it's a twofold thing so first, a justification means that God credits righteousness to the guilty sinner. As we saw in verse three, Paul was citing uh, Genesis fifteen six, and there he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. To justify is to not make somebody righteous or in, to infuse righteousness into the guilty sinner, but rather to declare 
the sinner righteous. It is a judicial act of God based on the satisfaction of God's righteous penalty by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And because Christ paid the penalty that our sins deserved, God can be both, as Paul says, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So B, justification means that God forgives all of the guilty sinner's sins. Positively, God declares the sinner righteous by crediting to his very account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Negatively, God does not credit the sinner's sins to his account. Now Paul uses three somewhat synonymous phrases to describe this blessing of forgiveness. First from verse 7a, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Now, the Greek word for forgive means to send away. It's sometimes used of divorce, which means a permanent sending away of one's spouse. It was also used of forgiving a debt. The books were wiped clean as the debt was removed from the debtor. Now, in the Old Testament ritual for the Day of Atonement, you may remember, uh, two male goats were selected. The high priest laid his hands on the head of the one goat that they call the scapegoat. And he confessed the sins of the people upon the head of this goat. And that goat was then sent away into the wilderness, take, <coughs> taking away the sins of the people. Forgiveness means that God has sent away all of our sins. They are removed from us. Second, from 7b there, blessed are those whose sins have been covered. Now, that word covered, it's used only here in the New Testament and it's quoted from Psalm 32.1. And it also refers to the Day of Atonement when the priest took the blood of the other goat. Remember, there's two goats, a scapegoat. The other goat was sacrificed. And the high priest would take the blood of the other goat and sprinkle it on the mercy seat the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the Ten Commandments, which God's people all have broken. The blood of an innocent victim covered the sins of the people. And, and those repeated animal sacrifices, they postponed judgment until Christ offered himself as that perfect and final sacrifice to cover all of our sins. Well, third, verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. This is the accounting term that's used 11 times in this chapter. God takes our debt of sin off the books. He wipes the slate clean. It means, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus now also, since David was already a justified man when he sinned with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, Psalm 32 shows that God's crediting of righteousness and forgiving of sins is not revoked by a believer's sins. Although, as I said, God disciplines us for our sins and, and does not remove all of the consequences of our sins usually, he does forgive them so that we don't incur his eternal wrath in judgment. Now we must submit to his discipline, it's coming, but we do not need to fear his condemnation. Well see, justification means that God credits Christ's righteousness to the guilty sinner and forgives all his sins apart from any good works. 
In verse 6, Paul says that David speaks of the blessing on the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, if it's apart from works, then how is it done? In verse 5, Paul says that the ungodly person's faith in Christ is credited as righteousness. Now, we've got to be clear. That doesn't mean that God views our faith as a work that merits righteousness. That would make verse 5 say the exact opposite of what Paul is actually saying. If faith somehow merited God's favor, then grace would not be undeserved. No, faith lays hold of what Christ did for us on the cross. God justifies, justifies us as a gift, not as a reward, not as a payment for what our faith earns. Faith, by definition, looks away from oneself and to Christ. Faith is simply the hand that receives the gift of forgiveness through Jesus paying for our sins on the cross. Well, thus, major point number three here quickly. To obtain this blessing, we must cease from our own works and believe in God's provision in Christ. Now, we saw in verse 5, the only one God justifies is the one who does not work. And in case we missed it, he repeats it in verse 6, apart from works. If you are trusting in any sense in your good works, you exclude yourself from God crediting Christ's righteousness to your account. While you must repent of your sins, if you're trusting in your repentance, you exclude yourself from this blessing of forgiveness. And while you must believe in Christ, if you are trusting in your faith, you exclude yourself from God's forgiveness. Your faith must not be in your faith. Does that make sense? Your faith must be in Christ alone. Some years ago, a little six-year-old Michigan boy uh, could not be found. That night, more than 80 people scoured the uh, woods near his home. By morning, more than 300 were looking for him. Then at about 10.30 in the morning, he, he just simply emerged from his bedroom. He had been hiding in a large drawer underneath his captain-style bed. Turned out that he had hid himself there because he was afraid. The evening before he disappeared, a policeman had asked him if he knew anything about a broken window across the street, and he had lied to the officer. A little later, the officer turned on his flasher to stop a nearby motorist, and the boy saw it, and his imagination just ran wild. He thought for sure that he would be locked up in jail. Fear and guilt drove him into hiding. Guilt over your sins can cause you to keep your distance from others and to try to hide from God. If you're not in Christ, guess what? You have legitimate cause to fear His judgment. But God offers every sinner the supreme blessing. He will forgive all of your sins and credit to you the very righteousness of Christ to your account if you will cease from your own good works and trust in what Christ did for you on the cross. Trust in Christ and you don't have to remember the duck like Johnny did. The guilt will be gone and you will know the supreme blessing of having all your lawless deeds forgiven. It's the only thing that's going to last, folks. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, the blessing of your word. 
We ask that you would just use that word to touch our hearts this morning, Father, as we learn to rest in you and to rest in the completed work of your Son, Jesus Christ, upon that cross. Father, if there's anybody in here that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, may, may you open their eyes, Father, to see the truth that we do nothing to recommend ourselves to you except come. We come as we are. Father, we ask for mercy and you grant it. We trust in the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, on that cross and what it has accomplished for us. And in doing that, you give us his righteousness and you forgive us our sins. Make that happen this morning, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you don't know Christ this morning, it is very simple. Don't trust yourself. It's how we're wired. From the earliest times, you know, when we're, when we're being raised, we're taught to be independent, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to take care of ourselves, to be independent. Well, let me tell you what, we are 100% dependent, whether you know it or not. You're dependent right now on God for the next breath. Uh, I've been dependent on God for a little bit of strength beyond the no normal, especially for my voice. It's getting weak quick. We all are dependent in every degree upon God. Your eternity is dependent upon God yourself. You cannot do it. You will fail. Come to God this morning. Ask him to be merciful to you, a sinner. Trust what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you. He'll make you his child today. He will forgive your sins. It's a feeling. I can't explain it. I can't explain it. But if you experience it, you will know it. That your sins have been forgiven and you are right with God. If you're, if you're a believer and, and, and trying to walk with the Lord, we're all at different places. We have, all have our own struggles. But the truth is, we tend to want to do things to, you know, recommend ourselves to God. Well, did you see that God? Yeah, he saw it. Anytime you say, did you see that God? That's just pride. <laughs> it's simply pride saying, hey, look at me. No, you look to God. You continue to walk where he says, put your next step. And then you give him praise for giving you that next step. I hope that's how you're walking your life today. In humility. Right? That's what Micah says. Walk humbly before your God. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.